Let's get right into it today. Southbridge, Philippians chapter 2. If you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to grab it right now. If you don't own a Bible, we give them away up here in the front by the table, by the offering box. Those are gifts for you, so you can go ahead and grab those. If you want to use your phone, version on your iPad, whatever you want to do. But Philippians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today, looking at verses 1 through 11, talking about foreign concepts. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. So you can go ahead and grab that. While you're turning there, just to let you know, in case you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks, We've been doing this series in the book of Philippians, and we call it a book. It's really a letter. It's a letter written by a guy named the Apostle Paul. Paul is a guy who helped start a church in Philippi, and the background for that is in Acts chapter 16, so you can read about how the church got started in Acts chapter 16. And he's writing now back to this church. He was there when it very first got started. And he's telling them thanks because they had given him some financial support to read about at the end of the letter so that he could keep preaching the gospel. And so really this is like a missionary's letter back to people that are financially supporting him so that he can then go and preach the gospel. But he doesn't just tell them thanks. Throughout the letter, he gives them encouragement and tries to help them grow in their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see that, and the thrust of it starts in chapter 1 and verse 6, where it says, He who began a good work in you. Now God begins a work in us at the point of our salvation. So when we stop trusting in our own performance, we stop trusting in our being good, going to church, not doing naughty things, we stop trusting in whatever that is, being better than someone else, there's people worse than us, all these different thoughts that are out there, and we shift our trust on the cross of Jesus Christ and what he did for us from our performance to his, then God begins a work in us. He rescues us from our sin, rescues us from hell, rescues us from ourselves, rescues us from death. He saves us. And we come into relationship with him, and God begins a good work in us, and God's the one who continues to do the work. And we talked about how in week one, we're all at work in progress, which is encouraging and discouraging. It means we haven't arrived, that's discouraging, but he, we're a work in progress, it means God's still working on us. He's making us more like Jesus. And then Paul started to share from his own life in the next passage we looked at. And we saw how Paul, even though he was in prison, his circumstances were bad, he had great joy, which is a theme in the book. He had courageous joy, and we saw where that courageous joy came from. He made one of the toughest decisions you can make in life. It's what or who to live for. And Paul had decided that he was going to live for Christ, for him to live as Christ, and therefore for him to die would be gain because he gets to be with Jesus. And we left off last week talking about how verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 that we're not citizens of this place, of America, of Philippi, of this earth. But if he's begun a good work in us, we're heavenly citizens. And so today that's why we call this message foreign concepts, because that's what we're going to talk about today as we look at some foreign concepts in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The NIV, it says this, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, verse 2, then make my joy complete by being like-minded Having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. He's talking about unity here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, and that's the key to unity, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, we naturally do that, but also to the interest of others. What Paul's talking about here is a foreign concept. It's called selflessness. That we think about other people. You go back in the passage and just start looking at some of those phrases. Do nothing, not one thing, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Using other people to try and get forward, uh, trying to accomplish your tasks by using those folks. Selfish ambition for your own glory, empty glory. It talks about do nothing for vain conceit, empty glory, things that won't last. You don't only do it for the glory of God. That's all that lasts. But do nothing out of empty glory. Do nothing out of vain conceit. What does it say in verse 3? Verse 3, it said, consider others better than yourselves. 
And think about verse 4. Verse 4 said, consider, look out for, think about other people's interests. That's selflessness, totally foreign concepts, especially when you consider the world that we live in. Think about how selfish we are. I mean, we invented the selfie. I mean, that's like all you need to say about it. But we are such a narcissistic people. I mean, most people just think about coming to church today. Many of you, and you don't have to raise your hand on this, but many of you come to church and you think, I want a word for me. Do you know that most of the New Testament is not written to individuals, it's written to the churches, to a community of believers? But I want God to speak to me because it's got to be about me and what does he have for me and what does he want me to do? We're so selfish. You want a study on selfishness? Go flying. I, I flew this week. What a study of humanity, just to watch. See what's happening. And forget that you're part of it, but then you start watching. And uh, we'll talk about judgment another time. But what <clears throat> ends up happening as you're, um, you're flying is you get all these people in close proximity with one another, and, and you start realizing how selfish we are. Like, I'm going to get my bag in there. No, no, we're all going to the same place. They reserved a seat. Like, we're all just rushing to get things done. And I was reading this week, they actually create products that I think feed our selfishness. But I don't know how many of you fly in coach. That's where I, I fly. When I fly, I'm in coach, and the space isn't very big. I'm not a big person, but it's barely enough space for me. And so some of you that are taller and wider and all that stuff, that, that's got to be tough. They create a product for you. It's called Create a Space. You can buy it for $40, and you set it up in your coach area, and it creates dividers for you so that it's like being in first class, they say, for $40. I'm really Do you know what? You're, you start setting that sucker up. You know what everybody's thinking? They're selfish. So you're going to take up the armrest. You're going to do all this stuff. They create another product. It's a knee wedge. It's 20 or, 20 or $21. I can't remember. You put it on your knees so that the seat in front of you can't recline so that you have more space. It's also called the jerk knee pad. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> selfishness. See, the problem's not flying, though. The problem is our selfishness, and we, it just gets illustrated when we fly. You know, my favorite part of the flight is this, and you can start watching this, and maybe you do this. But when the flight's over with, you land on the ground, and then the pilot turns the fastened seatbelt light off. You know what happens? They make a little ding noise. Ding! We are like Pavlov's dogs. Everyone pops up at that moment. Newsflash, you're not going anywhere. You sit for like 10 more minutes on the runway, in case you didn't know that. And so you could say to the person, you know, you're not going anywhere, but I'm going to be the first one to get there. Down in baggage claim, we're all going to stand again and just watch it. That's right. We're in a a hurry to be first. Are we thinking about other people's needs ahead of our own? Are we looking out for their interest? Are we thinking about ourselves as better than them? See, that's what we're continually doing. Why is Paul saying this to these folks? You know why Paul's saying this to these folks? He wants them to win Philippi to Christ. Who's he talking to here? We'll go back to verse 1. It says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. If, oh, that's the NIV. Interesting, and I don't know why they did it, but the NIV didn't translate one of the words that's here in the Greek text. It's the word therefore. There's some literal translations like the New American Standard and the King James. They translate this word. I don't know why the NIV didn't do that. I read the NIV because the majority of people buy NIV Bibles. And so most likely if you bring your own Bible to church, that's what you're going to have. Sometimes it's the best translation. Sometimes it's not. But it's not the most literal. So you know I'm not making this up. And, and the New American Standard is up on the screen. Very first word there, therefore. Anytime you read the Bible, you can't start with a verse that says therefore. If you and I are talking to each other out in the lobby and I say, hey, how's it going? Therefore. What happened? Like, what just, I don't know, what, what was that guy talking about before he started talking? What's happening? And so when you read the Bible, so maybe you've heard it said before, it's a Bible study principle, that whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to ask the question, what is it there for? Why is it there? And what it does, it's a connecting word, it ties back to whatever was before it. And you know what was before it? was what we looked at last week, verses 27 through 30. And I shared with you last week, verses 27 through 30 in chapter 1 are one long sentence in Greek. 
the main verb of that sentence happens in chapter in verse 27. It's translated as a phrase in English, but it's actually one word in Greek, one big word. It says, conduct yourselves, that's the verb, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy. That's all one word. The root of that word is polis, where we get our word metropolis, or city is literally what it means. What Paul's saying is, it's a verb, not a noun, it's not city, be a good citizen. But he wasn't talking about being a good citizen of Rome. Philippi was in a Roman colony. He wasn't talking about for us, and the word that God has for this church today, be a good American citizen. He was talking about being a heavenly citizen. It was to all those people who God's begun a good work in. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, then you are a heavenly citizen, which means this, your hope isn't in this place. Your hope isn't in moral reform. Your hope isn't in the next election. Your hope isn't in something happening today that's a good thing for you, for your family. Your hope is not here. Your hope is in heaven. Paul says later in the book of Philippians, in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, that we're not citizens of this place, that we're heavenly citizens. And we eagerly await a savior. That's our king. That's the king of our kingdom. From there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter talks about it and he calls us aliens on this earth. In 1 Peter Chapter 2 and verse 11, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. So whether you live in America, you live in Rome, you live in Canada, you live in Australia, wherever you live, this isn't your place. And so then you live as a foreigner. And then you live out these foreign concepts like selflessness. Because heavenly citizens are supposed to be selfless servants. And that's our big idea today, that heavenly citizens are selfless servants. You could say Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus, but heavenly citizens, because we're talking about citizenship, heavenly citizens are selfless servants. And if you think about that, that truly is a foreign concept. Because think about how most of us live and how selfish we are and what this culture is like. And then think about what people outside the church expect of the church. I read a story this week, uh, originally was published in the Dallas News, about a church that split, and they were arguing over the property, and who was going to get the property, and the judge said, they went to court over it, and the judge sent it back to the denomination. The denomination then ended up deciding that the reason why the whole argument started was because an elder at a luncheon got more or less ham than a little kid that he was sitting next to. What do you think the city was thinking when they read that? How ridiculous. Do you know what's happening here in Philippi? In Philippi, when we get to chapter 4, even though this is, like the, this is Paul's favorite church, he loves Philippi, he's not writing this letter because of problems, but there are problems because there's humans in this church. And what ends up happening, chapter 4 we find out, there are two women that are fighting with each other in the church and it's causing disunity. And they both go to different small groups, different house churches. And you know how this happens, right? Like in one small group, the person tells their opinion about something, how it should be and what they think should happen. And then people hear that and you just hear that side of the story and you're like, yeah, that's right. And that's what should happen. And then you got another small group that's happening over here. And this one, she's got an idea of how it's supposed to go in their small group. So she starts talking about it and the church and doing it right. And so then they start arguing about that. And then they're all kind of rallying up their team. And they're rallying up this team. And Paul doesn't say, here, this one's right. Everybody should, if you don't on this side, then they need to repent and we're gonna, that person should get their way. Do you know what he says? Humility is the key to church unity. Selfless service. Because get this, no church has ever been divided because of people's differences. Churches don't divide over differences. Churches divide over selfishness. And what Paul's saying here is the key is selflessness. And he wants Philippi, the whole city, to come to Christ. It's awesome that Lydia has come to Christ, businesswoman, Acts chapter 16. Awesome the demon-possessed woman, Acts chapter 16, came to Christ. Awesome that the Philippian jailer, but there's still people in Philippi who haven't come to Christ. So you know what they need to see? They need to see you living differently than the rest of the city. It should be like you're from a different place, a foreign concept. 
You ever been to another country, another place where they got different things that happen that they do? Maybe that you think, now that's weird, that's different. You go to some places, they drive on the other side of the road. Tempting to think as an American, they're driving on the wrong side of the road. Not driving on the wrong side of the road, they're driving on another side of the road, the other side of the road. It's a little different and difficult to drive if you've ever tried it. Um, you go to some places and they just do life different, it just happens different. You know, in Rome, they actually take a break from 2 o'clock in the afternoon till 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Isn't that great? They eat lunch too, by the way. Can you imagine if you just decided you were going to goof off one day at work? So you take a lunch from 1 to 2, and then at 2 o'clock you decide you're going to have a tea. And so you sit in your office, and you're dinking around doing nothing, and your boss comes walking in. What are you doing? <laughs> well, in Rome, they'd have a tea. You can go work in Rome then. Like, what do you, you can't just do that here. It's a different, different culture, foreign concept. I was reading this week that in Australia, they actually celebrate the queen's birthday twice a year. She wasn't born two different dates, in case you were wondering. They celebrate it. What's really interesting is they celebrate it in June and September, and she was born in April. I don't know. Ask Wendy Bannister. I'm not sure why that happens. But you go to different countries, they do different things. There's one place I read about in Africa where when they have a baby, a lot of the customs have to do with children being born. The, the mother's supposed to spit in the baby's face. It's a blessing, by the way. I'm glad we don't bless one another that way. Uh, the father actually spits in the baby's ear because that's where words come from. And so it's a word of blessing in your ear. And so that's how they do it. To me, that seems weird. Have you ever been to some place where they eat different kinds of food? I was in Ecuador one time. and they eat, Some stuff is really good. Some stuff I would prefer to pass upon. But uh, I remember when I was there, I ate a grub worm that was on a stick. It was considered a delicacy. I think the stick would have tasted better than the grub worm tasted. But I ate it because it was in that culture. But you don't have to go other places. We just don't think about our culture. How about if you were reading about America? What about Groundhog's Day? What a weird tradition that is. And they think that this, this what, what is it, uh, the groundhog comes out of the ground. It's been living since like 1850-something, 1856 or 9. I don't remember, Pensa-something, Pete or Phil, Pensa-20, Phil. Comes, who in the world's predicting weather because the thing comes out of the ground? Like, how weird must that be to the people in Australia while they're celebrating the Queen's birthday? <laughs> Foreign concepts. I was in a small group one time with a lady um, at our church, and uh, we were talking you know you just get to know each other in small groups so you start learning stuff about each other's lives and she was living here in the united states um but came from a different background whole family was from a different culture and she was talking about how when she was a little girl they had this dog it was at, the, at her uncle's house and the whole family was there for a get together holiday time period and she kept playing with this dog out in the front yard one day the dog was gone and so she went inside and started asking people in the family where'd that dog go nobody would answer her then at dinner time you guessed it yeah that's what happened i don't even have to say it at dinner time, they're all laughing at her because they're eating the dog. That seems wrong to some of you. And it's weird to the rest of us. But that's their culture. Foreign concepts. Do you know what's a shocking foreign concept for anywhere on this earth? Selflessness. But especially here in America. And what does it look like? Well, Paul's talked about it all throughout this passage. You do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing, not one thing, out of vain conceit. But then verse 3, he gives us some principles. Consider others better than yourselves. So we think about other people better than we think. We think that they're better than us. But notice, notice, look at the text. Not just what I'm saying. Who is he talking about? He doesn't say, think about all the people that are this tall. Think about all the people that are this, have this IQ. Think about all the people that have this kind of job, make this much money, that are this thin, this strong, this accomplished, they can run this fast, they can do whatever they can do. It doesn't say any qualification here. 
It doesn't say they actually have to be how we would consider better than us. It just says others. That means every other person that God places in your life. So husbands, that means your wife. Wife, that means your husband. Parents, that means your kids. Each one of us, that means our parents. Anybody who has a sibling, that means your sibling. That means your coworker. That means your next-door neighbor. It means the person you're sitting next to at church today. Anyone that God places in your life is who Paul's talking about here. Can you imagine if this would happen? Can you imagine what it would be like if a community actually did this? I was reading a book recently about what heaven's going to be like and the new Jerusalem coming down being a community because there's people there already, a community of people coming and how they would live. And Paul really, can you imagine if it was like this here? A group of people that actually thought of others better than themselves? And they actually continually were thinking about the other person. What can I do for you? And how can I serve you? And how can I help you? What would be best for your life? There'd be no lying. There'd be no pride. There'd be no cutting people down for the sake of making yourself look better. There'd be none of that stuff. There would be perfect unity because there'd be total humility. Can you imagine what that would be like? And what Paul wants is he wants their light to shine in this place of Philippi so that Philippi will come to Christ. And we talk about that as a church too. He says the next thing, he says, each of you should look not only to your own interest, verse 4, not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. You should be looking out for other people's interests. Well, in order to be able to see other people's interests, you've got to be able to see past your own. See, most of us, were blinded by our own selfishness. What he's saying here, you've got to be able to see other people's needs. You've got to be able to see their wants. You've got to be able to see their dreams. You've got to be able to see their desires. Interest actually isn't in the text. There's a blank spot there if you're reading the Greek. Look out for others. Interest is a generic word to talk about their lives. Think about their lives. Think about what's happening with them. Think about what is their story. Think about what are their wants. What are their dreams. What are their desires. What are their needs. Who does that? Because we're so busy thinking about our own. I was thinking about this week. I even shared it with somebody last week. Every once in a while I meet somebody and uh, they'll talk about not coming to church or they don't want to stand up in front of church or whatever different things because they don't want people to judge them. They don't want people thinking about them. And the advice that I've given since our church has started has been this. No one's thinking about your stuff. Because some people will say, people are, you know, I, how can I come to church because of, and they'll refer to something in their background or something they currently do or whatever it is. And they'll say, if I, I don't have these kind of clothes to wear, whatever it is, I say this. No one's thinking about you when, they come to ch- when you come to church. You know why? Because we're all thinking about ourselves. And then I felt rebuked by the Spirit this week and thought, I think it's true, but it's bad advice. Because I'm basically saying, come to church. We're all selfish. That's all we do is we just think about ourselves and... And then I started thinking about, I've been praying for our church, and some of you heard me say this before. I've prayed for our church since the very beginning. I still pray it now. Pastor Jaddy, I prayed it this morning. God, give us eyes to see people the way that you see people. And we get a commentary in the Gospels about how that actually looks. And we get, Jesus talks about how he looked at people, and there's a passage where it says that the people are coming to hear him teach, and he looks out at the crowds, and he sees them as hurting and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And the word for hurting there. William Barclay tells us in his commentary is the word that's used to describe a woman who's been viciously raped and then left for dead. The word for helpless actually describes a man who's been beaten so severely that he can't stand up anymore. 
And so what we're being told is that Jesus looks out, and what does he see? Like, think about that. He's landed these people, he's landed his boat, and these people are just coming to hear him teach and probably want to be fed and probably want to be healed. And think about the crowd and who would be there. It'd be a lot like all the people that come to church. There'd be business people there, and on the outside, they look really good. Church people there, they got their smiles on, the best they could possibly dress for that day. You got some people that are coming, they're really in pain, and they just, they, they've tried everything and nothing's worked, and they're coming to get some help. And then you got some people that are hungry, haven't eaten in a while. Got all these people coming together, a diverse group of people, and Jesus looks out and he doesn't see all that stuff. Oh, he can see that. He can see outward appearance. But he sees past that and he sees their real needs. And they're like sheep without a shepherd. And so they're just controlled by their circumstances. And they're, going, they're just trying to survive. And they're just trying to make and trying to make sense of this life and trying to find meaning in this life, trying to figure out what's, what's going to give them fulfillment. They're wandering around aimlessly. That's what Jesus sees. What if we saw that? And then I could say to people, and you could too, Oh, you should come to our church. And people will notice. And they'll want to find out about your background. And they're going to find out about the things that are going on in your life. Because they want to help you find healing. Because they'd be willing to lay their lives down for you so that you could know Jesus like they do. They're actually going to be thinking about you because they're going to be thinking about you as better than themselves. They're not judging you so they can think more highly of themselves. They're thinking about you because they want to know how they can serve you. Isn't that how it's supposed to be? The people that look out for others' interests. But who would do this? Who would do this kind of thing? We'll go back up to verse 1. Paul describes these kind of people. In the NIV here it says, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. So there's four if statements. Four descriptions of the kind of people that would do this. If any comfort from his love. If any fellowship with the Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion. So he's describing here what these people would be like. Now it's interesting, he's using these conditional clauses, words, the clauses that start with an if word, and we use them in English all the time. In Greek there are various different kinds to use. Sometimes you say if, and then you make a statement of things that might be true. Or sometimes you say if, and then it's something that's very likely true. But here it's called a first class conditional statement. If, and it is most certainly true. This is true. It could be translated since. Since, because he's talking to people who are heavenly citizens. Who are what? Verse 6, chapter 1, the people that God began a good work in. Since you have, and he's not making a logical argument here. He's not making a rational argument in the sense that what I mean by that is, he's not saying to them, do you have encouragement? Let me explain to you what encouragement means. We can lay out what encouragement is. And everybody who has encouragement then responds with courage. And, and let me explain to you what fellowship is. And then fellowship, everybody has fellowship. Then you see this evidence of the Spirit. No, that's not what he's saying here. This is an emotional appeal. What Paul's saying is this. Since you have encouragement, you already do. Because you've been united with Christ. Because you know what that means? Union with Christ is a, a theological doctrine we have. that says that we, are, we don't just believe on Jesus. We believe in Jesus. Jesus is in us. And so that means we don't have to bank on our performance anymore. We bank on his. Is that encouraging? The fact that you don't, your life's not based on how well you do, but it's on what Jesus did. Not only do you have that, he says, but this. Not only being united with Christ, but comfort from his love. If you have any comfort from his love, since you have at least some minute amount of comfort from the fact that you've been unconditionally loved, meaning nothing you can do makes God love you more, nothing you can do makes God love you less. Is there any comfort from that? If so, he's talking to you. If any fellowship with the Spirit, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you if you're a Christian. If you don't, Romans chapter 8, verse 9 says that you're not a Christian. 
If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. If any tenderness and compassion, if you have the Spirit living in you, you have some level of tenderness and compassion. Care for other people. If you have any of that, since you have that, since God's begun a good work in you, then I'm speaking to you, heavenly citizens, you're the ones to live this way. So that all of Philippi could come to Christ. Because it wasn't just about you. Consider them better than you. Look out for their interest and do it within the body of Christ too and then they'll see that and they'll be drawn that it's a foreign concept that you'd selflessly serve one another because you're heavenly citizens. When we think about it for us as a church, we talk about wanting to see Raleigh Durham come to Christ and Cary and Chapel Hill and Holly Springs and just the whole place would become a city on a hill. We oftentimes talk about how's that going to happen? And maybe it'll be at our Easter service. Like next week we're going to be outside, we'll have more seats, and you bring people, and then like in one shot people will come to Christ, and, and it'll be awesome. Or maybe there'll be Southbridge serves, and people see us serving all over the city, and it'll be an event that'll take place. Or maybe we'll run a stadium someday. Or maybe it won't be that sexy and easy. Maybe it'll be, I mean, we talk about 10x, right? And so we talked about if each person would reach one person over the next 10 years, multiply our impact, and then we try to make it more tangible than that. If each person just has one person that they're reaching each year, Maybe it'll happen as you live in the daily grind and you're faithful and you look out for others' interests, you consider others better than yourself, that they'll see something different in you and they'll be drawn to a kingdom that's not of this place, a different world kind of kingdom. They'll want to be part of a different citizenship and they'll want to be citizens of heaven because they get comfort from his love, union with Christ, his spirit living in them, tenderness and compassion that they've seen in your life. Maybe. And let me tell you, when you see it happen, it's powerful. And Paul knew that. You ever see glimpses of it here on this earth? People being selfless, it stands out, doesn't it? I was in my office the other day. I was reading through uh, just a Facebook feed scroll, and I was uh, just taking a mental downtime, and I saw one of those headlines. You ever see the headlines? They, they grab your attention. And a friend of mine had posted a basketball team, two players refused to play, and the reason will surprise you or something like that. And it hooked me in. So I was in. I was like, all right, what's the reason? I want to know the reason. So I start watching this video. The videos of these two white, preppy, yuppie, yuppie kids in this uh, private school in Waco, Texas, and they start talking, I'm thinking, oh boy, what are they doing? They're trying to prove a point and a cause here, like what's, kind of being cynical at the, at the moment. And they said they weren't going to play the game because the other team doesn't have any fans. The other team were the Gainesville Tornadoes, and they are actually a, not a private school, but a juvenile detention facility, kids that have committed felonies. Uh, they're in this school, and if they have, and that report said really, really good behavior, then they're allowed to play on this basketball team, and a couple times a year, they play some private schools in the area. They don't have any fans. They interviewed some of the Gainesville kids. One of the kids said, they were asking him about why they don't have any fans. He said, well, my parents came one time, but they just, they don't have time to come. Mm. And the kids on the other team, the private school, ended up saying uh, they didn't want to go into an empty gym, and they just didn't feel like it was right. And so they refused to play. And then the week before the game, they told their team they wouldn't play, they told the school they wouldn't play, and they told their fans, we're not going to play unless half of you will go on the other side of the gym and cheer for that school. And so when the game came, the Gainesville Tornadoes didn't know this happened. They came out, and to their surprise, there were signs all over their gym that that school had made to cheer for them. They had their own cheering section. In fact, they even had cheerleaders that were there reserved for that school with cheers written for that school. And the two kids that were on the, the private school team, they interviewed them. They said it was really weird. Once the game started, everybody got into it, and everyone was actually cheering for the other team. <laughs> and then they started interviewing the kids from the Gainesville school after the, the whole thing was over with. The first kid said, when I'm an old man, I'm going to be talking about this. 
And the next kid said, I'll never forget this. So the day I die, I'll never forget this. They interviewed another kid. basically said the same thing. I'll never forget what those kids did for us. And then I started getting emotional sitting in my office. I was thinking about who's cheering for those kids in life? Like, that's awesome for that one game. But you know the answer? No one. Who's looking out for them? Who's encouraging them? Who's going ahead of them? Who's telling them the way that life works? No one. Who's willing to lay their life down for them? So when someone does, it's like a culture shock. Because heavenly citizens are supposed to do such things. Selflessly serve. But why would we do this? Well, beyond just the fact that we want to see a city redeemed. Beyond just the fact that we have encouragement from the love of Christ because we're united in His Spirit, because we have fellowship with the Spirit, because we have tenderness and compassion. Do you get this? I'm passively telling you. There's a whole bunch of motivators in this passage. But the whole rest of the passage is fuel for the flame. The whole rest of the passage is this. You should do this because it's been done for you. And what happens in verses 5 through 11 is we get the example of Jesus Christ and how Jesus has done this for us. He's the ultimate picture of what Paul's talking about in verses 1 through 4. In fact, a little preview for the next several weeks, the next several passages of Scripture are illustrations of verses 1 through 4 in Philippians chapter 2. First it's Jesus in verses 5 through 11 here. Then Paul talks about his own life. And then you get two guys really close together, Timothy, who's mentioned at the very beginning in chapter 1. And then a guy named Epaphroditus, who's crucial to the church and Philippi, and is willing to die for these people. And so these are the examples of humility, of people looking out for somebody else's interest, considering others better than themselves, thinking about what would be best in their lives. It's the very thing that Jesus did. And we're just going to walk through verse by verse, through verses 5 through 11, and see what Jesus did, and how he's the picture of what happens here. He is the illustration. But before I do that, I'm going to take a little pause here and say this. Verses 5 through 11 in Philippians is the most studied part of the entire book. This part has had more stuff written about it. You could spend the rest of your life reading what commentators and scholars have talked about with this passage. And there's a lot of debate, theological debate, about what's happening here because it says that Jesus emptied himself. And so what scholars debate about is what did Jesus empty himself of? And some will argue, liberal scholars will argue, that Jesus emptied himself of his deity, of being God. He was, he was emptying himself, he was becoming man, so he was no longer being God. Now let me tell you something, that's not possible. Because if Jesus stopped being God, he can't die for your sins. A man can't die for your sins. One man, if he lives a perfect life, he could die for one other person. Can't die for the world. He can't live a perfect life either, so he has to die for his own. He didn't empty himself of his deity. Some people will argue, and this can get confusing in the conversation, that he emptied himself of his divine powers, that he wouldn't use his powers anymore. But we know that's not true because you read the Gospels. And some people say, well, he wasn't omniscient. He wasn't omnipresent anymore. He, I mean, he could, like, feed 5,000 people and walk on water. But that's not, like, really divine powers. Oh, well, show me somebody else who can do that. But we see that he knows stuff about things that took place in places that he wasn't at. And he reads people's minds. And, and he heals blind eyes. And he does all these things. So he didn't empty himself of his powers. But I love the translation of Scripture that Pastor Jad read earlier. It's English Standard Version. And it says there, when you, he talks about these things not being something to be grasped, which is a key word in, in this passage of Scripture we're about to look at, it says there that he didn't use any of those things for his own advantage. What he emptied himself of was his rights to use his godhood for personal benefit. And so, he turned these stones to bread because you're hungry, so turn the stones to bread. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's doing things for our advantage. He's doing it for our best interests. And so look at what it says. What this passage really is, it's not a theological discourse on the essence of who Jesus is. It's an illustration of humility, and Jesus is the illustration. 
Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 5. Attitude is a key word there. It's the same word that's used in verse 2 that's translated there as like-minded. You should be like-minded. Some translations of verse 5 say, And let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your attitude, your mindset should be the same mindset that Jesus had. Well, what's his mindset? Verse 6 tells us, Who being in very nature God. So he was in essence God. He's still fully God. But he did not consider equality, equalness, with God, something to be grasped or held on to. That's a key word. You can underline that word. So attitude, grasped. What did it mean to grasp something? Well, some of the ways it's used in, in classical Greek is that it's used to rob somebody of something. So you take something and you hold on to it like you're fleeing with that thing, running with it. But God wasn't robbing anything because he is in very nature God. So we're talking about holding on to something that is already his. And I think about that, I think about my little daughter, Gracie. She's three years old. And she is always carrying some plastic toy around. And we go to get out of our van, which has plastic toys all over the floor, in fact. And she cannot leave the van. doesn't matter if we're going to a friend's house. doesn't matter if we're going out to eat. doesn't matter if we're coming to church. She always grabs something. She'll grab, you know, Chase, which is the police dog that she likes. Or she's grabbing some little plastic. She's got plastic stuff. We have plastic stuff at our house. I don't know if you have this at your house unless you have little kids. we got plastic stuff at our house. I don't even know what it is, but I don't want to throw it away. Because I know if I throw it away, it goes to something that we probably need somewhere with some toy. And then somebody's going to be crying. So I don't just throw it in the thing. So we got, like, plastic nothing sitting around, okay? Sometimes we go to leave the van. She grabs a plastic nothing. I'm like, you just leave that in the car. Would you just leave that? Because she's got a death grip on that sucker. Like, she's not letting go. And so I got to decide in that moment, am I going to fight with her or am I going to let her carry her plastic nothing around everywhere? Well, the plastic nothing is hers. And so she wants to carry it around, whatever. You, you lose it later, we'll have a life lesson later. But you carry your plastic nothing around, it's yours to be grasped. You can hang on to it. God's divinity, his deity, his being God, Jesus, was his to be held on to. But he held it open-handedly. And so we're supposed to have the same mindset as Jesus Christ. Do you know what our problem is? Not only do we grasp a hold of the stuff that is ours, we try to grab a hold of stuff that's not even ours. It was Adam and Eve's problem in the garden. And to be like God, there's your temptation. Eat the fruit that you've been forbidden to eat. Grab a hold of that. But you're really reaching for something beyond just fruit. Satan's problem. When Satan falls. Read about in Isaiah chapter 14. What's his problem? Most beautiful being. Amazingly gifted but he wants God's glory, trying to grasp something that's not his. And so as heavenly citizens, and we're supposed to have the same mindset as Christ, the same attitude as Christ, what are we supposed to do? Not only do we not stop grabbing after the stuff that's not ours, we're supposed to be holding everything that we do have open-handedly. So all of our money, it's God, it's really yours, so however you want to use it. God, my life, it's yours for me to live as Christ, right? To die as gain, you in process, you there? My talents, my time, my dreams... How many people, how many times do we spend time in a small group or talking with a friend that's a believer in Jesus Christ and life isn't going the way that they thought it was going to go and they keep trying to make it go that way? Maybe God's got a different plan. You're holding your life open-handedly? The dreams? So hold all of it open-handedly. The credit? The glory? Or are you seeking selfish ambition? You're seeking vain conceit, which means empty glory. Glory that doesn't last. Or are you continually looking for others' best interests? Because that's what Jesus is doing and that's... What we see gets expressed when he doesn't grasp it. So through being a mere nature God, verse 6, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, held on to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That's a key word too, servant. So he's God, 
and he becomes a servant. And so he's taught his disciples this. Remember his disciples get in arguments about who's the greatest and why they're the greatest and we let one of us sit on your right hand, one of you sit on your left hand and can we do this? And he says, listen, here's the deal. It's okay to want to be great, but the greatest is the one that's the least. The greatest is the last. Don't lord it over people like the Gentiles do when they have leadership and said, look for ways that you can serve. And so here's God. He's becoming a servant. And so what does that look like? Well, he tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. We see it in the way that he lives his life. He's not doing things for selfish gain. And we're supposed to have that same attitude. Real quick question, quiz question. Anyone here better than Jesus? Raise your hand, please. Come forward. I'd love to interview you. I would love to hear how you got to church today. Did you walk on water on the way here? Were you feeding people with Skittles out in the parking lot, like thousands of them, before you came in? No, but he did this. He was God. Didn't consider that something to be held on to. Emptied himself. Taking the very form, very nature of a servant. We see examples of this all through the scripture. You read John chapter 13 where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. You know what happens in that passage? It's their, it's their last supper, their last meal together. And Jesus with his boys. I mean, these are 12 guys. He spent the last three, three years loving, equipping, joking around with, laughing with, crying with, getting exhausted to the point of falling asleep in the boat, falling asleep on mountainsides. Like they're spending their lives together, literally spending their lives together. And Jesus knows he's going to die. It says his hour has come. So Jesus knows he's going to die. If you knew you were going to die within 24 hours, I doubt you'd be playing Angry Birds. Okay, you're going to do something that matters. You're going to do something that's important. Now, Jesus came for a mission. He came to seek and save that which was lost. And he knows it's, ba- it's banking it on these 12 guys being faithful. One of them's a betrayer. He knows that. One of them's going to deny him within a few hours. He knows that. He's omniscient. All-knowing still. And what does Jesus do? He's got to teach them something, right? Like, it's come down to the end. He's got to give them the most important lesson he can give them. He doesn't teach them how to preach. And he doesn't teach them how to, they're going to have to start the church. The whole movement of the church is going to start with these guys. He doesn't teach them how to start a business. Doesn't give them some entrepreneurial principles. Doesn't give them five lessons on delegation. Doesn't give them three ways to begin a ministry. Do you know what he shows them? He shows them how to serve. It says what happens is that Jesus gets up from the table. He walks over. As he saw their dirty feet, he's looking out for their needs, their interests. He takes off his robe, which is significant as a priestly robe, by the way. So he doesn't consider what is his. It was okay for him to be a priest. He is the high priest. But he takes that off, doesn't consider equality with God, something to be grasped. And he puts on a different garment, a towel, which would be the garb of a servant. In this case, the lowest servant. He gets down on his knees. He washes the disciples' feet. Even Judas. Think about what happens there. And then after he's done, he says this. John chapter 13, verse 14. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet. So notice there's something to observe there. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to do this until he's done it for them. He doesn't say during the meal, knowing that Judas would betray him. Hey, Judas, why don't you get down here and wash our feet? You're obviously the lowest. And and Luke tells us what's happening, by the way, is they're arguing again. It happens repeatedly through the Gospels. Luke chapter 22, they're actually arguing at this meal about who is the greatest. How did that argument go, by the way? John, I'm the one he loves, only in your book, John. (laughs) Peter, I'm the one who always gets referred to. It's because of your big mouth, Peter. Like, how, what is, who's saying what? What's going on here? Here's my talents. Here's what I bring to the table. Here's why I should be, by the way, not number one, number two. 
Because no one thinks they're greater than Jesus in this group. So how does that argument go? I'm number two. You don't see that on basketball last night, do you? Mom, number two. We're the second best. We're losers. Notre Dame. Whatever. Hey, Kentucky's cheating. Whatever. No one's saying I'm number two. These guys are. They're arguing about who's number two. They're clear that Jesus is number one. Jesus says, listen, you only do this because now that I've done it for you, now that I've done this for you, I've washed your feet. Who am I? Your Lord and teacher. Lord means master. Teacher is a position of respect. And I've taken the lowest form of a servant. Jewish slaves were not allowed to be commanded to wash feet. Jesus voluntarily, as the king of the Jews, washes their feet. You also should wash one another's feet. Verse 15. I set you an example that you should do as I've done for you. You do the very thing that I've done for you. Verse 16. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master. Anyone here better than Jesus? If you bow your knee to Jesus, he's your master. Nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. How did Jesus do this? How was he able to do this? There's a verse at the very beginning of John chapter 13. I think we oftentimes just read past. John chapter 13 and verse 3 says this. Jesus knew. What did he know? That the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus knew who he was. He knew that in very nature he was equal with God. Let me translate that into our terms. Jesus didn't have anything to prove. He was secure in who he was. Do you know why many of us can't be selfless? It's because we're insecure. It's our insecurity stops us from being selfless. Insecurity stops us from being selfless because we think we have something to, we gotta have something to prove. Do you not know? Uh, I'm the boss. You need to think the good things about me. Don't you, didn't you see how I laid my life down for you? Now you need to give me credit for that. That's not really humility, by the way. We, the way we're always thinking about ourselves is a reflection of our own insecurities. Do you know who you are? You're the person, verse 1, who has encouragement from being united with Christ. It's not based on your performance. It's based on his. You have comfort from his love. You're unconditionally loved by God. You have fellowship with the Spirit. The very Spirit of God has been put in you as a deposit that will be taken back from you when you get to heaven and you're made perfect because you're like him, because you've seen him. Do you know who you are? You're a son and daughter of the king. That is your identity. But this king had no place to lay his head, by the way. That doesn't mean you get a Mercedes. That means you get to be part of this kingdom, a heavenly citizen who then follows the king, who's then crucified, by the way. So you lay your life down. But be secure. You've got nothing to prove. It's all about him and his performance. Right? It says in John chapter 13, verse 3, that he knew that God had placed all things under his feet, and so then he gets up and puts on the towel. Here it says he's a servant. And what did it look like to be a servant? Well, they didn't talk about washing feet here, but you get the idea Paul had that in the background. Being made in human likeness. In verse 8, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. No one humbled him, he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now think about how that reads. He became obedient. Who became obedient? God. Who did God become obedient to? Uh, God the Father. They were equal in essence, but he subjected himself, he submitted himself to the Father in his functioning here on earth. He became, he even says in the Gospels, I only do what the Father tells me to do, but they're equal. He didn't consider equality God something to be grasped though. Oh, he held that equality open-handed, so he took the form of a servant and became obedient. God became obedient. How much did he become obedient? To death, the ultimate sacrifice. To death on a cross, the worst kind of death. So the way this reads is this. He became obedient, obedient to death, obedient to death on a cross. 
which to us, we think, yeah, that's the story. It's kind of warm and dearing. Old rugged cross. He walks with me and talks with me, and we wear our crosses on our earrings and necklaces and all kinds of different places, and churches have crosses on them to decorate them. Do you realize the cross is a scandal to the Philippian believers? Polite Roman citizens don't talk about crucifixion in conversation. It would be offensive and shocking. You don't say the word cross. You don't say the word crucifixion. In fact, scholars have studied every time in Greek literature that cross and crucifixion, the the New Testament and outside the New Testament, it's appeared, it's always shocking and offensive. Some people believe that Paul, it was a stumbling block to him, that Jesus died on the cross before he became a Christian. Because who could imagine a Jewish Messiah dying on a cross, the worst kind of death? Jews considered that hanging, and anyone who was hung was cursed. And then you get into the gruesomeness of what took place in the cross, and you start reading the Gospels, and you see what ends up happening in the Gospels. And even before Jesus is crucified, how gruesome it is. They rip his beard out, they spin in his face, they put the thorn crowns on his head, they rip him naked, and then they flog him. With Roman flogging, not Jewish, Jewish flogging, you stop after 39 lashes, because at 40, you can die. Roman, there's no mercy. He passes out, wake him back up. So most people die. If you've seen the Passion of the Christ, you've seen how bloody and gruesome it can be. He's beaten beyond recognition of a human, we're told in the scriptures in Isaiah. And then they take him to carry his crossbeam, 130-pound beam he's supposed to carry. He can't carry it. He's exhausted. Someone else has to carry it for him. They get to Golgotha. They lay him down, they nail his wrist to the cross, they hang him up. Tertullian tells us many men went insane and died at that moment. He doesn't die then. He keeps being tortured on the cross. But that's just the physical torture, and that's not the worst part. The worst part is that God the Father forsakes him. And you know why he forsakes him? Because of you. Because he becomes your lying and your lust and your pride and your deception and your selfish ambition and your self-glory and that bad relationship you had in high school. And the thoughts you're having as you walk into church even, judgmental thoughts, the anger and the times you're trying to put yourself ahead of other people, he became all that and God hates that and despises that. And so he turns his back on him. He's forsaken and darkness covers the earth. So he became obedient, obedient to death, even death on the cross. And what caused him to do that? You. Hebrews tells us that. Keep our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. What does verse 2 say? Who for the joy set before him that's you, endured the cross and its suffering and its shame. All of that he took on because he had you in mind. He's thinking about you being reconciled to God the Father, that the gospel will go forward. The same thing that Paul's talking about. Where did my joy come from? The gospel going forward, that God ends up being glorified, and it happens through your redemption, that he began a good work in you. And how does it happen in the church? Oh, the church has got to be a different type of kingdom. Selfless servants that lay their lives down for the sake of others so that people see Christ because they've got the same mindset as Christ, same attitude as Christ, and they're living this out so that all of Philippi would come to Christ. Jesus humbled himself. What does the scripture tell us? It tells us this, that God opposes the proud. So if you have pride in your life, God's against you. You're fighting him. And we're thinking about this passage today. I'm going to tell you it's convicting. I've been meditating on this passage all week, thinking about this, and then realizing how proud I actually am because I think, oh yeah, we need to hear this as a church. Oh wait. You start catching yourself saying statements that you're like, that sounded pretty pride, prideful. That's because it is. Start seeing myself try to get my own way. Sorry, Shanna. Try and make, try and work these circumstances and kind of get the, do you know what that is? Selfish ambition. It's not thinking of other people, but in yourselves. But we're all still a work in progress. He's still working. Still changing. And Jesus was the ultimate example. Scripture says God opposes the problem. 
but gives grace to the humble. If you humble yourself, he exalts you. If you exalt yourself, he'll humble you. And so Jesus humbled himself to the ultimate, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And it says, therefore, God exalted him, verse 9, to the highest place. And what we get in verses 9 through 11 are his exaltation. We'll talk more about this next week for Easter, his resurrection, his exaltation. It says, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, all created beings ever. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? It's every knee. Think about that. Every knee on earth. Everybody who's alive when Jesus comes back. Everybody who's in heaven when Jesus comes back. Everybody who's under the earth. Did you see that? Satan's knee is going to bow and his tongue is going to f- confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Hitler's knee is going to bow. Nero, who killed Paul, his knee's going to bow and his tongue's going to confess. Now, some people are going to confess willingly and rejoicing because they've done it here on earth and they're followers of this heavenly citizenship that our king is here and our king's going to rule and he's going to reign now. Some people are like defeated enemies in battle that lay their weapons down and they know they're defeated, but their heart's not in it. They're surrendering because they've been beat. So what's being said here is not everyone ends up in heaven. This isn't universalism. That You might have to spend a little time in hell to burn off the bad stuff and eventually you'll get there. That's not what's being talked about here. Because what has to happen in every person's life is Romans chapter 10 verse 9. And it happens here on earth. And let me say this because I think this is relevant for some of you I've even spoken with. And some of you that are here today, maybe there's one person who needs to hear this. You're not born a Christian. No matter how religious your family is, no one is born a Christian. There has to be a moment in your life where Romans chapter 10 verse 9 happens. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you'll be rescued from your sin. Then you'll be rescued from hell. Then you'll be rescued from yourself. Then you'll be rescued from your selfishness. Then you'll be rescued from your sin. Then you'll be saved. But only then. Everyone will do it eventually. We do it willingly here and now for the glory of God. That's what it's about. And so, Southbridge, who are you going to serve? you going to lay your life down for. Ask God to give you opportunities today with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your family members, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, because you are a heavenly citizen and heavenly citizens are selfless servants. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning thankful for your truth. Thankful so much, so thankful for your son, Jesus. God, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Jesus. Some of us literally wouldn't be here And we certainly wouldn't be in this room. And we wouldn't be singing songs about you. And we wouldn't be reading scripture about you. And your son Jesus is amazing. Thank you so much that he would humble himself for us. That he would look out for us. That he would lay his life down for us. Father, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know your son Jesus as their savior. That right now they would call him Lord. And not just for what they get out of it, they would bow their knee and they would surrender as the master that your son Jesus is a worthy king. And he'd be our shepherd. And he would guide us. Thank you for the shepherd king, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending him. I pray that we would glorify him through the way we live. I pray that we glorify him through the things we say. I pray that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, and the actions of our lives would be acceptable in your sight, that we would live by faith, and that faith would be expressed in action. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.